We are uh, continuing the study, uh, my study through 1 John. Uh, specifically, we will be looking at 1 John chapters 2, verses 1 through 6. So if you would like to turn your Bibles there, that's where we will be. So uh, we can get into there. Uh, the title of the series, the whole series as a whole, is Walking in the Light, uh, because this letter as a whole explains what it means to walk with Christ. Uh, now, we must remember that the idea of walking in this context uh, means to um, live or how to live out with Christ. Not again, you know, we're not trying to walk like him, you know, I'm not trying to mimic his walk, uh, but literally to live like him. So, walking in the light means living a righteous life like that of Christ. Today, we're going to look at three major points within uh, this theme, the first being, who is our advocate? Uh, and what does it mean to have an advocate? The second is understanding propitiation. And the third is what it means to know our advocate. Hence my title for today's sermon, Know Our Advocate. As we examine the text today, we will understand our advocate his work, and how we can know him. Well, with that, let us go ahead and turn our attention to the text. So if you're able, will you please stand for the reading of God's word? And again, this is 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 through 6. And my little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for our sins only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And by this, we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But Whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same manner in which he walked. May God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. So I love this beginning Chapter 2, 1 John begins with the term of endearment. Little children, John is familiar with his audience, and they with him. And it would seem that these parties understand the relationship. He is like a father caring for his children. Now, that's not to say that John was promoting some sort of um, system of, of the, you know, the Catholic system, the Catholic system, you know, with fathers and priests, bishops, no, no, no. Uh, rather, he's an appealing to them in a loving way. He cares for his reader. He's not a tyrant demanding that they conform or that they must shape up or ship out. No, he wants to see them thrive. He wants to see them succeed. As an apostle and a leader of the early church, John loved the church. He has a deep care for them, and he desires to see Christians live a life 
that is in the light of their Lord and Savior. Now, unlike religious leaders throughout the ages, including our own and obviously the ancient one as well, that wanted conformity or they wanted obedience for power and for control, John was moved by Christ. John cared not for fame and riches. He cared for the glory of God and longs to see the sheep of God fed, knowing that the truth of God and to be healthy, walking in light of fellowship with the great shepherd. Now, this is a beautiful opening to this passage. I hope that you understand that this is also my motivation. I truly hope that you here this morning will see that these words I'm trying to preach to you, to to speak to you this morning, are done because the love I have for you. I care about you, and I want you to hear this. And just like John cared for the early church, I want to see God do great things for you, and I care and desire to see you grow in your faith. So, as he continues with his writing, he says, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And so here, this is a tremendous reassurance because the text, as I mentioned in my last sermon, we all have sin, right? You can go back and listen if you've missed it or weren't here, but basically we all have sin. We're all in sin, and we will sin at some point. This is true for all of us. Our flesh Right? our desires within ourselves, the world, the, the system around us, the people around us, and the enemy, the literal enemy, Satan, and the other demonic forces around us are wanting to see us jump into our sinful desires. Even though this is true and sin is there, we have an advocate. Someone that will defend us before the Father, someone that will speak on our behalf, someone that will come along to our side and defend us in the ultimate courtroom. A legal counsel like no one else. Why is he like no one else? Wonderful question. I'm glad you asked. Our advocate is Jesus Christ. We know that he is the God-man. The second person of the Godhead. He is qualified to speak because he knows all and he created all. He holds it all in the palm of his hand. Who could possibly be better than this? But notice the text also says Jesus Christ, the righteous. Jesus is the righteous one. No one can fit that description. There are no other ones that can claim this title. 
He alone fits this reality. Jesus is our righteous advocate. Now, consider for a moment, if you will, the stereotype of lawyers in our day. Uh, hopefully, if you are a lawyer, I'm not going to offend, but don't worry, I'll clarify in a minute. See, we get again, going stereotype. Crafty wordsmiths who can navigate the subtleties of the law and argue nearly any cause. They can make the worst offenders seem as innocent as little doves. And as the stereotype goes, they navigate words and the law to get anyone out from having to pay the fullness of their guilt. Now, like I said, this is the stereotype. <laughs> I'm sure um, that there are lawyers out there. In fact, I, I know a handful of lawyers that I don't think fit this bill, but nevertheless, we have to clarify that. But that's the stereotype because I want us to think of that because when we think of a legal advocate, we tend to jump to that stereotype. But our text clearly shows that our advocate Jesus Christ is not like this stereotype. See, our advocate doesn't have to cleverly navigate a legal system to argue our innocence. See, our advocate, Jesus Christ, the God-man, does his advocation righteously. Amen. Does it righteously. He is the righteous one, meaning he is always pure and holy. And as I've mentioned this morning, as well as in my previous sermon last time I, I spoke, we're all, by nature, trapped in sin. Then it begs the question, if that's true, that we're trapped in sin, how can Jesus righteously advocate for a morally corrupt man like me? Or if you want to personalize it, how can God righteously advocate for a morally corrupt person like yourself? Fair question. But the answer to that is found in verse 2. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not only for our sins only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Propitiation, propitiation, excuse me, uh, in its simplest definition, means to satisfy wrath. Now, the ancient pagan world would have understood this term essentially meaning something to this effect, that uh, someone needs to bring a gift to an angry god or goddess, right? Uh, in various mythologies, we see this sort of example where some person, some bozo, does something to offend a god or goddess. Whatever the case may be, um, they do um, in fact, the, the whole purpose of the Odyssey is because you know, Odysseus didn't make an offering. And so then Poseidon's mad at him for the whole rest of the book. Uh, sorry, it's a spoiler. Case. Well, actually, it's a setup, so I didn't spoil anything. Um, but anyways, then, yeah, sorry. Um, it's a setup. This is right there in the first, I don't know how many pages, but nevertheless. But then that's sort of the, the premise here, right? Then they would, to make things right, the individual would bring their gift and appease this deity, and uh, their wrath would be over, and therefore the transaction would be complete, and the pagan deity would go, cool, and stop punishing or, or bringing judgment or, or wrath or whatever the case may be to that individual. Now, if you're thinking, 
which I hope you are, that's not really in line with Scripture, then, well, then you're absolutely correct. Um, God is not angry or vengeful uh, to mankind like this. This picture that we just painted is, is the pagan understanding. God, though, as we understand him from the Bible, God is loving. He's long-suffering. And he's long-suffering with all of creation. Scripture says that God causes the rain to fall on the just and the wicked. This means we have to understand propitiation, this concept, differently from the pagan understanding. So God is not petty like these pagan gods. God is holy. God is just. He deals righteously with the sin of mankind. To be clear, hell is the just eternal judgment for a sinner. That's what's right. It's what we deserve. Again, as I explained in my last sermon, sin is rebellion. Absolute rebellion against God. And so therefore we deserve to be eternally in God's wrath. But this is the awesome reality of Jesus being the propitiation. See, Jesus offers himself to deal with the eternal wrath. Jesus bore our sins. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 notes this in verse 21. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Now on my slide here, I included for our sake, he, the father, made him Christ to be sin, just so we understood the context of this passage. But that's the point, that the Father gave the Son to be sin. See, he knew no sin. He was the perfect one. Christ took our sin and gives us his righteousness. We are clothed in the righteousness of God Because our advocate not only speaks on our behalf, but because he paid our debt. He can advocate, advocate because he bore our wrath. He does not have to cleverly navigate the law to make us seem innocent. No, 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 no. He declares us innocent of our guilt because he paid the penalty for our guilt. Now, brothers and sisters, that is the definition of amazing grace. Now, summarizing these, these two verses is just... Amazing to understand how great and how awesome of a Savior we truly have. And just how he advocates because he actually bears our punishment. I wish I could say more, but I'm just in awe of this reality. However, I must 
briefly pause here and reflect on the rest of this verse. Because as we saw in this passage, of verse 2 in particular, he is the propitiation for our sins. Cover that. But here's where we need to pause and take a look. It says, and not only for our sins, but also for the sins of the whole world. Now, some will claim that this second part of, of uh, verse 2 of chapter 2 of 1 John is arguing for what we would call a provisionist view. Or some even might even want to argue a universalist view. Because they will point out that the text says that Jesus is a propitiation for the whole world. And that because of this, this would uh, negate or uh, challenge the doctrines of grace. Especially when we consider limited atonement or what is better known as particular redemption. However, I do not agree with this claim. This verse actually fits quite well into the doctrines of grace. For one, we'd have to consider where John is coming from as a Hebrew. John, being a Hebrew, would have understood atonement. You see, the Day of Atonement was not for everyone. It was a particular day to the Hebrews. Yet, now the work of Christ is not isolated to just those of the family of Abraham, but instead now the Gentiles, which I'm assuming are most of us, are now saved. In fact, this verse John writes here echoes what was promised to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. In you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. You see, through the lineage of Abraham, the Messiah would come. It's through this progression of history that he would use Abraham and his descendants, and they would come, and he would, this Messiah would come and redeem his people. And these people would have representatives of every tribe, nation, and language just as the great scene is depicted in Revelation chapter 7. So that's a small argument for why I I think that this fits within the doctrines of grace. While I wanted to take the time to clarify that here this morning, I understand that this is a big concept and there's much debate in the church today. And literally I could take the rest of my time and even other sermons unpacking this further. Um, So if you have other questions, I would gladly interact with you. Uh, I'd love to talk to you about that if you have more questions about the doctrines of grace. Um, However, for today, I just need us to return back to our text. So hopefully that helps clarify that little question. So with that tangent, uh, I would like to make sure that we're on track. Um, In verses 1 and 2, they show us that Christ is our righteous advocate. He is our propitiation. In other words, he is the sacrifice for our sins. So if we continue on in verse 3, we'll see this. Quote, And by this we know we have come to know 
him if we keep his commandments. What we have here is that those that have an advocate in Christ will keep his commandments. Now we have to pay close attention to the phraseology here because some might want to claim if we keep his commandments, then we will know him. However, that idea would sort of imply that we must earn his approval or we'd have to do something to come to him. But that is not the case. He is already our advocate. And he advocates for us and he offered himself to us as a propitiation. He has dealt with our atonement. We obey the commandments because we understand the depths of our salvation. The salvation that flows from the love of God he has for us and we are moved by God's grace on us. To clarify, 2 Corinthians chapter 5 verses 14 and 15 say this, for the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died, and he has died for all. Verse 15, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. again, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him, because of what he's done for us, that he died and was raised again. Christ's love then overwhelms us, and we ought to be so moved. Because of Christ's actions, we no longer selfish ambition or a selfish mindset. Rather, we desire to live for Christ. Now we see a similar statement all the way back in Ezekiel chapter 11, verses 18 and 19. And I will give them one heart and a new spirit I will put within them. I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh that they may walk in my statutes and keep my rules and obey them. And they shall be my people and I will be their God. So once again, this is all a moving of God. This is something God does. It's not something I can do. It's not something you can do. It's not something any person can do. If you recall again in my last sermon, just how deeply sin impacts us. It has divided us from Christ. Yet Christ saves us and reconciles us to God then we are transformed to desire after God. The heart represents the will of man. With this new heart, 
our will is changed by God. And we want to obey and keep his commandments because of what he has done in us. He has given us a new heart. A heart that loves him and desires to follow after him. By unpacking all this, we have now an opportunity to somewhat reflect on faith and examine the salvation that we claim. So I want to ask a question. Generally speaking, is there a pattern of obedience to Christ in your life? Do you desire to keep the commands of Christ? A Christian ought to be able to answer yes to both of those questions. We ought to hate our sin and long to be rid of it. Now, to clarify, we already know that sin will never fully be gone in our life while we live here. And I'd be willing to bet that some of you in this particular moment might be doubting your faith right now. You might be doing that because you struggle still with a particular sin. <coughs> However, know that we will still continue to sin here. So if you are struggling or now doubting your salvation, that actually might not be so bad. I say it's not so bad because it means you're taking this examination seriously. You're taking time to really sort of ask yourself if you are living up to the standard. But I'd give you some more time to evaluate and to ponder this even more. Because are you really the same person that you were before? Christ opened your eyes. Plus we have to consider the sanctification process. That we are all, as we are in Christ, we are being sanctified. We are growing. Now, God saved me in 2001. God has done a tremendous amount of work in me in those years. However, he's also made me more aware of things that 20 years ago I never would have thought on them at that time. His sanctifying work continues throughout our life. So this passage is not saying that you must be perfect or else and at the moment of salvation. But what it's saying is if you are in fellowship with God there will be an overall pattern, an overall pattern of more obedience. Now, again, to, to really sort of clarify here, again, this doesn't mean that it's a perfect linear model, right? That it's perfectly, that you're always going to be trending perfectly onward and upward for your Christian walk. There might be dips and valleys where you backslide and have a stumbling or something comes in, you know, these various... In- Ideas can happen to you. But again, it's the general overall pattern that if we were to zoom out from that, you would see a general trajectory of being sustained and being sanctified by God. 
And so I really wanted to emphasize that. However, John is going to emphasize this again and again in this letter. While it's short, this is a major theme of his. Um, and so we will revisit this notion again. So if you're still worried, keep reading First John, and he'll clarify even more so. Or wait around till I get to it. Choice is yours. I'd recommend reading the thing firsthand, but that's my own preference. Um, anyways, let's, looking back at verse 4 now, we then see a contrast. We have a radical contrast. So if we go back to John, and in verse 4, we see this. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. Now, this is a key difference because it says, does not keep his commandments, meaning that this hypothetical claim, this hypothetical person, is someone who is not actively obeying the commands of God at all. He is not following Christ. Someone that might talk a lot about God, but clearly does not obey him, and you can see that in the evidence of the way he lives, or I guess I could say she lives. I'll be inclusive. Now, the ancient world, this is no different than today. Uh, this was a major issue within the world of philosophy and the world of religion, where uh, the great philosophers in the, great, in the Grecian world would talk about the divine and talk about the eternal and talk about philosophies and get into all of this stuff. And they would ponder all these great depths of the universe. And they would talk as if they knew things personally and closely and, and as if they were wise and great minds. <laughs> but they did not often or even always have a life that was moral. There'd be no connection between their deep thinking and their actions. They would behave one way and maybe proclaim a different way. So John takes the time to remind us and remind his first readers that if someone claims to know the truth, but they have no evidence, then they are not to be trusted at all. Imagine, as a pastor, preaching, like I am right now, agreeing with this text, and preaching that we must obey Christ, but then it comes out that this pastor is a drunkard and has a mistress. <sighs> you guys are following along, this is good. If you're, if you're laughing, you get it, excellent. Since, since he is not living in obedience to Christ, John would call this man a liar and claim that the truth is not in him. Notice again that action and speech must be aligned. I mean, we just, we just stop and think about all the times. You know, we, we, have, we even have adages in our, in our popular vernacular about this. Do as I say, not as I do. No, no. John would say that's hogwash. If I don't know if he would say it that way, but you know what I'm saying. So if, if you were then under a pastor like this, who was making these claims, but then living this radically contrary life, you would need to find a pastor that actually practices what he preaches. 
knowing the depths of theology and the ways of God is so incomplete without a life that reflects the truth we preach. Verse 5 connects our obedience as a sign of our love. This teaching is throughout Scripture, the connection between obedience and love for God. If we love God, then we will keep His commandments. For this is the very nature of discipleship. This is the very reality of discipline. Excuse me, of discipleship and fellowship. Uh, Chapter 1, as I pointed out in other sermons and even alluded to this morning, notes that we have fellowship with God. But fellowship needs love. Without love, genuine fellowship fails to be genuine. As we then obey and know God, our love grows, or as John puts it, is perfected. This understanding of fellowship and discipleship is drawn out in verse 6, that this is how we are in him. We know that we are in Christ when we abide in him. Meaning we obey and follow him. Now this is the very nature of our fellowship with Christ. We imitate him. We live in a manner that reflects this reality but also one that pleases and glorifies God. Therefore, we can't, again, subject this teaching just to a simple rule following for the sake of rule following. We aren't doing some sort of religious check mark. No, rather it is obeying his commands because we desire to follow after him and live in the same manner. He is our example and he is instructing us how to be like him through his word. How can anyone claim to abide in someone without knowing them? They cannot. Again, that's logically impossible. And that is the very point of what's being said here. We have fellowship with the light. We have fellowship with our advocate. Therefore, we ought to live like him. Now, if I wanted to be like someone, then I would have to know them and know what they would do and know what they would react to and know how they would sort of carry themselves in whatever situation that they might find themselves in. So in the case of Christ, this comes through the study of his word. And this comes through our daily fellowship, our time of prayer with him. I mean, consider what we have at our fingertips within the very pages of scripture where we see how Jesus lived. We see how he acted. We see how he responded. We see how he carried himself. And that's just looking at Christ. Imagine 
looking at the whole picture of God's doing in history when we go back to Genesis and read through Revelation and we can see just, again, how God carries himself. So we must be in the word and we must be in prayer knowing this God just as our advocate is righteous and as the righteous one, our aim then must become to be righteous ourselves. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is a propitiation for our sins, and not our sins only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. So theoretically then now as we unpack this passage, these six verses here this morning, and we consider this as a whole, I hope that we see that the love of God just continues to move within us as we know him and as we obey him more, as we get into the scriptures more and understand who he is more. I mean, I've read a lot. I've studied a lot. I've spent a lot of time, and I, I look back at my early walk and can think, man, I was sort of foolish and I sort of had a very plain understanding of who God was. But as that's deepened, I now only marvel more and more as the days go on because I go, why am I this guy? <laughs> I, it's mind-boggling that God would, would redeem a fallen person like me. I don't deserve this. I've never earned this. I've never walked with any sense of righteousness until Christ entered in my life. So why would he do this? Because again, of his great love for his people. And so, brothers and sisters, I pray that we will understand this and that again, we won't see God as some oppressor. Follow the rules or else. That's a foolish idea rather look at what he's done he is our propitiation he is our advocate he settles the wrath why because he loves us and that is so beautiful so to sort of summarize this passage then as a whole we see that we should not sin but when we do, keyword when, we have a righteous advocate that took our penalty of sin. His love, mercy, and grace 
towards us then motivates us to live rightly because we are in a loving fellowship with our advocate, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. Will you pray with me? Lord, I thank you again for this truth. Lord, I pray for those that are either just beginning this journey with you or those that have been here a long time walking with you for many years. And Lord, I just pray that you will continue to grow our love, strengthen our faith, continue to sanctify us and cleanse us each and every day because Lord, we need it because we know we sin and we know we fail. Lord, I also pray for those that maybe are hearing this for the first time or hearing this for maybe a another time but have never responded. And so, Lord, I pray that you will stir in their hearts to open their eyes to the truth of your gospel and that, Lord, you will speak to them and convict them that they need to place their trust in you to be cleansed and to be atoned for by the work of Christ. So, Father, again, I thank you for this day. I thank you, Lord, for the beauty that is all around us and the various things and people and creation that we see. And, Lord, I pray that you will just continue to give us eyes that grow and love you each, or grow grow, grow and love you more and more each day. So, God, again, I thank you and pray this all in Christ's name. Amen.